Amen. Ever since the Israelites departed from Mount Sinai in Numbers chapter 10, we have seen a series of chapters demonstrating rebellion in their hearts. Numbers 11, there was a complaint in the camp of Israel and a craving for the menu in Egypt. In Numbers 12, Moses' own siblings complained against him. And they wondered whether he was really the only one through whom God would speak. In Numbers 13 to 14, there was a massive rebellion. It was triggered when a group of spies who had spied out the land of Canaan, they came back with a majority bad report. And that was followed by an infectious spiritual rebellion where Israelites began to grumble and cry out with panic. And they called for a new leader who would take them back to Egypt. That was followed by a 40-year judgment pronouncement from the Lord. At the end of Numbers 14, a group of Israelites decided, we're going to try and enter the land anyway. This was, at this point, they were doing it against the Lord's instruction. After a pronouncement of, you shall not inherit. So when these Israelites went into the land, the Amalekites defeated this group. In Numbers 15, there was a man in the camp who publicly, defiantly rejected the fourth commandment. The commandment about remembering the Sabbath day and keep it holy. He tested the Lord and defied the Lord with brazen openness. In Numbers 16, there was a group from the tribe of Levi and Reuben. They sought to have the role and responsibilities that belonged to the priests. A man named Korah led this rebellion against Moses and Aaron. And at the appointed time of judgment, the ground opened up beneath them and consumed them. At the end of that chapter, in number 16, the day after a judgment with Korah and his rebel allies, there were a group of Israelites who accused Moses and Aaron for being responsible For the deaths of those rebels. Not only was this not true. It demonstrated further hardness of heart. And callousness of mind. And a plague of judgment. Began. That ended the lives of wicked opponents of Moses. Now as I've just mentioned. From chapters 11 to 16. All of these episodes. It's overwhelming to get a sense of. How recalcitrant and stubborn in the heart. The Israelites were in the wilderness. The theme that we see is that there are times where they don't trust Moses. They don't believe he's God's appointed leader. They're doubtful about Aaron being an appointed high priest. And through divine words and divine actions, God will vindicate his chosen leaders and hold the wicked accountable. These chapters are back-to-back rebellious episodes. The dating of these chapters in the life of Israel through those years, that is not given so clearly. I don't think we should look at Numbers 11 to 16 and say, well, that was a terrible week. No, I mean, it was probably much longer periods of time that passed. Sometime during those 40 years, these events that we've heard about take place. They occur at different points, though. Combined together, strung together for us as readers to see the rebellion present in the camp. What is clear in number 17 is it is connected to the previous episode. These two chapters, number 16 and 17, go together. A rebellion of Korah in number 16 because Korah and other allies wanted what the priests had. 
They wanted their role and their responsibilities. And part of what God does is not only bring judgment upon the wicked, he vindicates and confirms the truthfulness, the rightfulness of the priesthood from the tribe of Levi and Aaron as the high priest specifically. This episode is about a miracle in number 17. And it's going to be through this miracle involving a staff of Aaron from the tribe of Levi that God will demonstrate, I have appointed the one who will go between my presence at the tabernacle and the Israelites. The one who will stand in the gap. The one who will be the go-between, the mediator, the high priest. In verses 1-5, to there is some instruction about these staffs. The Lord spoke to Moses. And this test about staffs sounds like this. He spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and get from them the staffs, one from each father's house, from all their chiefs, according to their fathers, 12 staffs, write each man's name on his staff and write Aaron's name on the staff of Levi. The reason that the staff of Levi will be included here is because with 13 staffs, every tribe is represented. Now, around the rectangular tabernacle, three tribes encamp on each side. We normally speak of the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's because the tribe of Joseph divided into Joseph's sons being tribal heads, Ephraim and Manasseh. Levi is not normally counted among those 12 in the same way. Those are priests who aren't going to inherit a portion in the land. They're going to have special work at the tabernacle. The Levites will be included in this test. And so the instruction is, get these staffs and write a name on it. Write a name of the person from the father's house. All the chiefs of the father's houses represented on these 12 staffs. But add the staff of Levi. And the reason verse 3 is so important to isolate is because Levi's priestly work has been called into question. Not only was Korah in rebellion, people who in number 16 were not even from Levi's tribe wanted what only God had given for that tribe's responsibilities and role. And so he says, gather the staffs, add errands in there, put the names of the leaders on them. And there are 13, therefore. Aaron's staff has a role prior to numbers that we've noticed in Exodus. During our time of Exodus, we saw that God wielded his power and authority through various plagues and miracles that were held in some cases by Aaron and the staff of Aaron. If we go back all the way with that background, God has already demonstrated in Exodus the wielding of his own divine power and authority through the appointed human mediator. And therefore, when Moses is told, make sure Aaron's staff is involved. Well, we already know what God has done to demonstrate his power and authority. What does he plan to do here? Verse 4 tells them they're going to go with these staffs, or Moses will in a certain place, deposit the 12 plus 1. These 13 staffs are to be deposited in the tent of meeting before the testimony where I meet with you. In the rectangular tabernacle and in the most holy place, there was the Ark of the Covenant. And Moses would draw near behind the veil to the Ark of the Covenant, either right on the other side or even at the Lord's direction within it, because of his unique role to meet face to face with the Lord, so to speak, and proclaim revelation to the people. Moses is told these staffs are not just put anywhere in the camp of Israel. You take them into the tabernacle 
and you take them before the Ark of the Testimony, the meeting, the tent of meeting before the testimony, where I meet with you. And I think the idea here is God is going to perform a work that will demonstrate his appointed leader. Who will the mediator be? Well, let God make it clear. And one of the ways they will show this symbolically is they will approach the tabernacle, which was to approach the presence of the Lord ritually, symbolically. And then they will go into the most holy place, Moses that is, with these 12 staffs plus one with Aaron's name on it. And therefore, God's direction, God is saying, put these before the Ark of the Testimony and I will show you whom I have chosen. In verse 5, the, the staff of the man whom I choose shall sprout. Okay, hold on a second. The staff of the man I choose shall sprout. What does he have in mind here? Well, any staff that any of these tribal heads would carry around to lead the people or put their name on it, these are pieces of wood that's no longer connected to any living roots and trees. Uh, no one is expecting a, a staff from any of the tribal heads to grow anything. To sprout. The Lord is promising then a wonder. He's going to confirm his chosen mediator. The man whose staff uh, sprouts is the one I choose. And thus I will make to cease from me the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against you. Those grumblings call back to number 16. Those grumblings about, about Levi's tribe and about Aaron as the high priest. This is what some of the dispute and conflict was about. God says, then bring all the tribal staffs to me. Because if there is confusion, if there is division among the tribes about who the priest shall come from and who the appointed high priest is, God says, let me again make it clear. And these 12 staffs plus one, these tribal staffs plus the priestly tribe of Aaron's tribe, Levi, God will demonstrate clearly for the people with a miracle. And in verse 6 and 7, the fulfillment of the instructions is given. Moses spoke to the people of Israel. All right, so God said, you speak to them. Verse 6 says, he did. Okay, it says fulfillment, part number one. All the chiefs gave him staffs, one from each chief, according to their father's houses, 12 staffs. Okay, that was great, because he also said, you gather up those chiefs, tribal staffs, and he did. And he said, make sure you include Aaron's staff. It tells us the staff of Aaron was among them. Okay, so far we're checking boxes. Everything looks nice. He's given these instructions. Fulfillment is uh, given. But, you know, maybe Moses will change his mind last minute about where to put it. Verse 7, Moses deposited the staffs before the Lord in the tent of the testimony. So no plans were changed. No staff was excluded. No different location was chosen. The designated chiefs, their representative staffs, the placement in the most holy place, it all is nice and fulfilled. So what is God going to do? Verses 8 to 11 is the miracle. The miracle on the staff of Aaron. And it was not within minutes. They were to set a timer. They come back the next day. In verse 8, on the next day, Moses went into the tent of the testimony. And behold, the staff of Aaron... For the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms and it bore ripe almonds. Well, if he was expecting, um, I'm going to go in and see this staff looking a little bit different. It's going to sprout something. What a surprise was in store for him. Because he comes back into verse 8 and you see sprouted staff, the buds, the blossoms, the almonds, all of this 
demonstrates the uniqueness of God's appointed tribe. The Levites. The Levites. And from the Levites, Aaron as the high priest. So Moses goes into this tent of testimony and he notices four outcomes on the staff. There's more than just a sprout. There is that. That's outcome number one. A sprout was on the staff. But then secondly, it had begun to produce buds. Thirdly, it began to produce blossoms. And it had bore ripe almonds. It is manifested overnight all the stages of growth. I mean, it is fully produced. No, no, nobody would look at that and say, well, you know, that happens from time to time. Think about the impossibility of this situation. If you had, let's say, part of a tree in your yard fall and the trunk remained, it would not surprise you if further growth happened to, say, sprout out from that trunk. That those branches or some kind of leaf would begin to come out because it could still be an indication of life within there. These staffs are not connected to anything. No one's saying, well, you know what might happen? We might just wake up one morning and, you know, it's sprouted and produced blossoms and buds and ripe almonds for all we know. No one's expecting that. But even if you did have something connected to a life-giving source, none of this happens overnight. Overnight. So the quickness of this and the fact that it's disconnected from any root in the ground or on a tree is what makes this truly, before the eyes of the people, a miracle. It has borne a sprout, buds, blossoms, ripe almonds. And I think what this says is Aaron's staff is connected in a way that is unique. Aaron's staff is connected to the life-giving power and purposes of God. In a way that the other tribes had not been chosen for such unique work and mediatorship. So if someone were to say, well, Moses is telling us that the staff that sprouts is going to be the one God has chosen. How is that going to be? Because through the priesthood, the life-giving presence of God is connected. And when you see this staff, we don't see a work of nature here, but rather a miracle of God to demonstrate what's happening at a deeper level. He is inviting people to come to him through the appointed priesthood from the tribe of Levi. I would also suggest to you that the very appearance of these blossoms and and ripe almonds is intriguing because of where the almond branch or the staff takes place. It blossoms and buds and sprouts and ripens in the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, you have various instruments, one of which is described with almond branch language. And you have to, again, rely on Exodus here. In the book of Exodus, we're told that in the building of this tabernacle, they were to have a golden lampstand. And we're told in Exodus 25 that the branches of this lampstand would be shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms. Well, my goodness, here you have the staff of Aaron brought before the holy place. And what is happening overnight? The exact sort of thing that you would find depicted in gold on the lampstand. Now, the lampstand represents the light of God's presence. And the light of God's presence is mediated through the priesthood of Aaron and his sons. In other words, it's as if there's now an eighth branch on the lampstand. It's the staff of the tribe of Levi. And, uh, and of course, it isn't that. But at the same time, that's what the connection is. 
It demonstrates the life of God's presence and the light of his favor on the people. But it's not found outside his appointed mediator. It must be by appointed mediator. Now, if Korah and his rebellion had said, well, you know, Aaron and his sons are saying that they are the way to the presence of the Lord. But, you know, I think there are other ways to the Lord. You know, I don't think we need Aaron and his sons. I think I can get to God by any means I want. And we find that there are many contemporary objections that go along the same lines. A lot of people might sound like Korah and his allies to say, I mean, you, you Christians are saying that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But, you know, I, why, why should that be the case? Why should that be so unique? Because of what God has demonstrated in the person and work of his son, he has confirmed that he is the appointed mediator and there is no approach to God apart from him. And this priesthood here, it's important with the high stakes spiritually in the camp that nobody be confused that they could approach God in this way or in that way. If God has said this is the way, then this is the appointed means to draw near to God. And here, this miracle demonstrates this. The light and life of God are over his people in the lampstand. And shining with favor through the appointed priests who bless them and who promise the shining face of God upon them. They are to come to the Lord and he will receive them. He accepts their offerings at the altar. The priesthood mediates the welcome of God to the sinners in the camp. Come to me. In verse 9, Moses brought out all the staffs from before the Lord to all the people of Israel. So I've got this picture here of Moses in his mid-80s. And he's got his arm full. And he's got all these staffs in. And he's carrying them. I don't think he made 12 trips. All right. I think he just got them all. He's got them all. He's bringing them out. And every man starts to take his staff. They're checking the staffs. They're looking at the names. No, that one's mine. Oh, here's mine. Where? I can't find it. And finally, everybody is locating their staff. But nobody is mistaken with a staff that has Aaron's name on it. It's got buds and blossoms. It's got ripened almonds. Everybody would see it. The tribal heads would all take their staff back exactly as they had brought it. No change. What would that communicate to the people? That they are not the appointed means by which sinners draw near to God in the camp where He is holy and righteous. It is only through the appointed priesthood. It must be through them and through them alone. And the Lord says to Moses in verse 10, Put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony. To be kept as a sign for the rebels. That you may make an end of their grumblings against me, lest they die. Thus did Moses, as the Lord commanded him, so he did. This staff will now be placed behind the veil. The book of Hebrews will later talk about this. Hebrews 9, verse 4, looks back at what was present, not just behind the veil, but was eventually placed inside the Ark of the Covenant. And we're told in Hebrews 9.4 that in the Ark of the Covenant was placed a golden urn holding manna and Aaron's staff that budded. That little line in Hebrews 9.4 talks about Aaron's staff that budded. What was that about? It's all number 17. That's the background there. It's number 17 and the New Testament references that earlier event. It wasn't always a, a staff that had sprouts and buds and blossoms and ripened almonds. But by the miracle working power of the Lord, he demonstrated it is this way. This is the appointed means to draw near. So Moses obeys the Lord here in verse 10 and 11. 
The instruction is given to place it behind the veil. In verse 11, Moses does this. And the fact that the other tribes still had their staff and that Aaron's is behind the veil is a sign to the rebels not to test the Lord, reject the Lord, or refuse His appointed means. What they should do is humble themselves and said, Our God, who is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in love, has appointed a means for us to draw near to Him. So we should do that. We should do that because He's gracious and merciful. We should not say, Oh, but I want it to be this way. Because Korah and his rebels, in their foolishness and in their arrogance and in their presumption, would, would reap the judgment of God by defying the mercy of God. Don't reject the merciful provision of God saying, but I want it to be this way. Korah and his rebels were consumed in in Numbers 16. In verses 12 and 13, the alarm of the Israelites is reported. They are panicking. Not that they haven't had earlier reason in earlier chapters to be concerned, but here's their outburst. The people of Israel said to Moses... Behold, we perish, we are undone, we are all undone. They seem to feel death, their very physical death is imminent. They're panicking, they're filled with distress. Now why is that the case? Well, if they hadn't had it even clearer in their minds prior to this point how rebellious they were, it seems to land on them in a fresh way of how outrageous their words have been. And surely, surely they think we are done for. After what we have done, surely, behold, we shall perish. We are undone. We are all undone. They they seem to speak not just for this individual or that individual, but even corporately. Surely the judgment of God will break out upon us now. This response is at least an awareness, some kind of way of being in touch with what they have done that was offensive and dishonorable and rebellious. They don't think things are going to go well now for them. They fear for their very lives and are confident that they will be brought to a swift end. And one of the ways that they, uh, one of the reasons they might respond this way is earlier in Numbers, after leaving Sinai, between Numbers 11 and 16, the Lord's judgment has fallen upon the wicked who have defied Him and opposed Him. And now once again, groups of Israelites are realizing we have indeed defied the Lord. Because our representatives from all those tribes brought back their staffs and Aaron's had budded and blossomed and sprouted. It had ripened almonds and now it's sitting behind the veil. Surely we have all crossed the line. We are done for. And they say in verse 13, everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we all to perish? And that's the way the scene ends. The scene ends with this expression of of fear and of question. The fear is everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Now in one sense, as one writer put it, they did get the message that there is no way to approach God but by God's appointed means. But now wait a second. What about the means God has provided? If they say in verse 13, everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. But wait a second, what about those who draw near to the tabernacle by virtue of Aaron and his sons, the priests? Surely we need to nuance their statement here. Though they may feel that they are done for and they cannot approach God, God has a priesthood through which they do approach. 
What they need to do is not reject it. God has extended mercy. What they need is to not exclude themselves from God's mercy. What God has demonstrated is grace and reconciliation in the camp to bring them near through offerings and substitutes and a priesthood that mediates. What they need to do is not reject that. So if they say, everyone who comes near shall die, yet everyone who comes near by any other means than the Lord has appointed, they need to be able to say everything that is true. Are we all to perish? Are we all to perish? You wonder if these people have failed to realize the reconciling life and blessing and favor God had ordained through the priesthood of Aaron and his sons. The story of Aaron's staff that sprouts and buds and blossoms and ripens with almonds is connected to the life and favor of God in the tabernacle like the lampstand and the life of the priesthood that is mediated and communicated and all of which is taking place through the rituals and symbols of the camp of Israel. But the truth remains in the Old and New Testament that God in His grace and mercy has made a means to bring sinners near to Himself. I think we could say that the ultimate purpose of Aaron's staff that buds and it's it's placed back behind the veil is like all the other Old Testament signs and pointers to lead us to a cross and a tomb that demonstrated the confirmed purposes of God and His Son. In other words, Aaron brought... A staff without life into the tabernacle. And when the staff without life was placed there, God brought life to what was dead. Think about the empty tomb. The body of Jesus placed in a tomb. And God bringing life to what was dead on the third day. Blossoming life of new creation and power. Wonder and miracle. Good news for sinners to draw near to God. God has confirmed his appointed deliverer. We, you know, you may hear people say from time to time, uh, from time to time in the culture, well, you know, I think there are other ways to God. But why do they think that? It's not because they have some sort of solid authority to base such a claim. The scripture teaches in the Old and the New Testaments that God is gracious and merciful and calls sinners to come to himself through his merciful provision. But those who would say, well, you don't need Christ. You know, there's this way or that way, and there's these works in this path. What you are saying is nothing different from Korah and his rebels. Who say, I don't think there's anything special or unique about that. I think it could be this way or that way, and I think I can do it this way, and that I could, in fact, be this or that. And it is a refusal to receive with humility. The gracious revelation of God who welcomes sinners to him. It is in fact to refuse his means. And Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. In other words, it would be in his hand ultimately. There would be the staff of representation that would sprout and bud and blossom and bear fruit. It would be the empty tomb. We're told in Acts chapter 17 that God has appointed a day to judge the world. And He's demonstrated the truthfulness of this. We're told in Acts 17.31 in Paul's message in Athens, he says, God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness 
by a man whom he has appointed. And he's given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In other words, if the people say in the camp of Israel, how will we know it's Levi's tribe and Aaron as the high priest? God says, I'm going to give you a sign to confirm it. And if someone were to say to Paul, how do we know there's a day of judgment coming and that Jesus Christ will be the appointed judge? Paul says he's raised Jesus from the dead. That's how you know. That's how you know. And in Acts 4, in verse 10, Peter preaches that religious leaders and Romans had crucified Jesus, but God raised him from the dead, and that the stone that was rejected had become the cornerstone. And therefore, in Acts 4.12, Peter says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Why is it Christ the way, the truth, and the life? Because of who He is as the Son of God. Because of the satisfactory work that He has accomplished on the cross to divert judgment from sinners by bearing it in our place. Only Christ has done these things. And therefore we hope in Christ because He has died in our sins so that we do not have to die in our sins. We must answer the question of Numbers 17, 13. The question is, are we all to perish? And the answer is, in Christ, we shall not. We shall not perish. Because Jesus himself is the life and light we need. One greater than the staff of Aaron in the very tabernacle in the camp of Israel. Sinners may have a sense of their need. The sense that their sins deserve judgment. They might think, well, behold, all that I have done. Surely I am undone and we are to perish. But they must remember the merciful provision of God. Relevant even in number 17. Up to 2022 here on October 30th. Jesus says in John 6.35. I am the bread of life. Are we all to perish? Jesus enters the room with a pronouncement. You need not perish. I am the bread of life. And he says whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We ask the question. Are we all to perish? And Jesus says, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that you may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread, he says, that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Friends, when we look at number 17 and we see that God has said, it will be this way. Come to me, sinners. Approach through the means of the appointed priests. Those shadows would be eclipsed by the person and work of Christ. Fulfilled by his cross work and empty tomb. His enthronement at his ascension to the right hand of God. We have one who is Lord of heaven and earth. And in his name, in his name is salvation. He is the way, the truth, and the life. We ought not refuse the mercy of God. We want to hear the pronouncement of Christ. For if we were to say, am I to perish? Jesus would say, come to me and have life. Let's pray together.